this is the red line, where we talk to three expert witnesses about one issue shaping the news both here and overseas. And I'm your host, Michael Hilliard. I used to play chess a lot as a kid, but as much as I played, my strategy mostly stayed the same. Control the center of the board where people have to travel through, and your opponent will have troubles later on in the game as you push in from the center. To me, it was always crucial to be in control of those center eight squares, as it gave me the option to push the offensive at any time, to push the offensive on my terms. For China, those center eight squares are the South China Sea, and it's many, many tiny islands and reefs. Beijing has been building up bases throughout the area, turning what were once small rocks, not even above sea level at high tide, into large industrial military bases, boasting airfields, deep water ports, barracks, and even missile batteries. These are essentially large, unsinkable aircraft carriers in a spot China views as its outer defense rings. Much like the Japanese did during World War II, these islands can be used to threaten aircraft, ships, and crucial trade routes. So the US knows all too well the pressure that can be applied by your opponent owning small airfields in the middle of your supply routes. Whoever controls these center-eight squares will be on top of the largest natural gas reserves in the world as well, and oversee a trade route that boasts $3.8 trillion worth of goods each year. So it's no wonder Beijing and Washington are competing for these center squares. But what if your country lived in the middle of these squares? What if your nation now lives at the center of this conflict? This week's focus is on the Philippines, an archipelago of over 7,000 islands on the edge of the South China Sea, a nation that is yearly battered by huge storms both geologically and geopolitically. It might also be the nation to hold the balance of power in what is in most people's opinions, the world's biggest powder keg. So to talk more about that, we turn to our first guest. Part one. 7,000 little problems. Well, the Philippines is a tropical country. You would notice that um, our kind of, our level of development is pretty, pretty much similar to those with other Asian countries. Aaron Jed Rebetta is a research fellow with the Asia-Pacific Pathways to Progress think tank and a local from Manila, the capital of the Philippines. And he joins us today. So the Philippines is a... Um, middle income economy, specifically a uh, lower middle income economy. Yeah, we, we, we are a melting pot of cultures as well. We were a colony of uh, Spain and then the United States. So we are a Christian, the sole Christian country. Uh, despite that, go and meet with people, you would notice that we were also able to preserve our Asian and traditional values. So the Philippines resides in a pretty interesting part of the world. So what are its relationships like with its neighbors? Yeah, um, well, the, the Philippines has a, has a good relationship, you know, with, uh, with all ASEAN countries. Yeah, but, um, you know, uh, technically, uh, the Philippines, you talk about the South China Sea disputes. The Philippines is also has disputes with, uh, with Vietnam and Malaysia. But it's, it's, not, it, it's, it's unlike the, the kind of maritime disputes that we have with China, you know, because... Uh, because also of what China uh, has done in the South China Sea. We all have uh, stable economic relationships. 
Yeah, so uh, Vietnam, Vietnam is a uh, strategic partner. Uh, it was just a few years ago that we decided to elevate our bilateral relationship with Vietnam because of you know common strategic concerns, and a lot of that has to do with the maritime disputes in the South China Sea. The Philippines is an immense archipelago with over seven thousand islands, some with millions of people, others with absolutely none. Uh, is it difficult for Manila to control such a wide, disconnected territory? Uh, good question, Michael. Uh, you know, going back in history, you know, when we were colonized by uh, Spain with the Spaniards, you know, um, it is said that our ancestors found it hard to have a united front against the Spaniards because of, you know, our archipelagic state of nature. Each uh, region um, or group, uh, group of islands have different identities. That's why they felt that, you know, um, there's, a, there's, a, there's an internal we-they we, they mindset, you know, in, in pre-Hispanic uh, Philippines. So that's why it was really hard to, you know, I think it's still, it's still a challenge, you know, um, interconnectivity. The most famous of these independents were the Muslim Moro people in the south who fought the central Manila government for decades. Uh, can you elaborate a bit on that? Yeah, you know, so when we were um, colonized by first by, the, first by Spain and then the United States, um, both colonial powers actually were not able to, you know, subdue the island of Mindanao. Now, the island of Mindanao is is located in you know in southern Philippines, and it's predominantly um, Muslim dominated, and so in contrast to people in in the northern islands of the Philippines uh, who are um, Christians, Catholics, so they have a different sense of identity, and with that you know they felt that they were never really part of of the Philippines to begin with. Because um, to them, uh, you know, they weren't they weren't colonized by by uh, by the imperial powers, and uh, they think that the current government in Manila is a successor of the of the previous imperial governments, uh, which is why they think that you know the identities are just really different. So. To them, yeah, they're really they're really separate, and and they think that um, they belong to a totally different group. That's why they actually resorted to, you know, uh, armed struggle. Yeah, so they felt that um, they were their needs were not being properly addressed. Uh, they think that you know they were being exploited. Um, not much attention is being given to them by the national government. So they said that um, we're different from you, so why don't we just secede? Uh, so that was what led to the Moro uh, secessionist movement. The Philippines were formerly a colony of the United States. So how did the United States assist in the fighting in the South? Yeah, so the, U the, the help that was provided by the Americans um, uh, were in the form of... I ISR, um, intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance. So they, they didn't really send boots on the ground. So it was us 
that uh, did the you know actual fighting. And in the larger battles in this conflict, what was the fighting like? Yeah, it really was uh, house to house because the setting is um, yeah, it's it's a it's in it's a city, so it's in uh, it's an urban setting. It's pretty much like the scenarios in in Iraq where U.S. forces would raid cities where cities were uh, bombarded. So our special forces um, did that job. So they went house to house um, to make sure that they were able to clear, you know, every every single house. Um, that was uh, quite. Um, there was a difficult job because you know, as the terrorists move from one location to another or from one house to another, they were planting IEDs, you know, improvised explosive devices. So that made it difficult for that slowed down our soldiers from clearing the areas. The Moros fought with the government in Manila for decades eventually signing a peace deal with Manila in 2019, which gave the region greater autonomy. The man who signed that deal, though, is current Filipino President Rodrigo Duterte, who himself became famous for his brutality as mayor of the largest city in the south of the Philippines, Davao. He is highly criticized by members of the West and the UN for his actions in the drug war and the southern conflicts. But as a Filipino person, how would you describe him? Yeah, you know, Michael, um, this is this his platform on the war on drugs and uh, law and order were actually, you know, I think arguably what what won him the presidency. You know, his tough image, I think, is what made him president. Because before him, you know, people got tired of people who were, I mean, lead, lead got tired because of leaders who were all talk and uh, did not do much and criminality was rife uh, it seemed like the government was weak you know uh, like lawlessness was, can be found here and there and uh, Duterte stepped in and he said that that's what he promised he said that I'm gonna provide you stability and order and while saying that, he has some credentials, you know, behind him. Uh, people looked at the city of Davao, where he was formerly a mayor, and how, and how the city was transformed under his leadership. So from a city that was formerly full of criminals and rebels, it became one of the, one of the most developed cities in, in the Philippines. So that was what the what what uh, in I think do the Filipinos to Duterte. When he was mayor of Davao, he ran what were effectively death squads, vigilantes empowered to go after drug dealers and drug users without any sort of accountability or even a trial. He even admits to killing seven to eight people himself. So how is this seen by the average Filipino citizen? Uh huh. A uh, good question, Michael. You know, um, you know, as I, you know, in in the in one of the words I used to describe him, I said astute, right? He's clever. Now, when he says that he killed bad guys, he did kill, but he killed criminals. So the social reaction to to this kind of statement is 
I mean, I guess for the most part of the population, is not really discussed. But you know, um, there's a sense of tolerance. Why? Because he killed criminals. He killed the bad guys. He didn't kill the innocent, or he didn't kill the good guys. That's why there's a sense of tolerance for such kinds of statements of uh, President Duterte, and the people love it because you're you're getting rid of the bad guys, and the people, you know, um, have gotten full of the bad guys. They want all the bad guys, all the criminals. They want they they want them all gone. Yeah, so that's why domestically in the Philippines, there's a certain degree of acceptance. Killing someone without trial is something that in the West would be political suicide uh, and would more likely land you in jail than the executive branch. So why is it the opposite in the Philippines, where Duterte is actually quite popular for these actions? Right, so so I think, um, I think Michael, this, is, this relates to the kind of justice system that we have here. You know, um, I think some people think that uh, with our justice system, nothing much is going to happen, you know. It will only take a lot of time for for criminals to be to be prosecuted or found guilty. So they're kind of they're kind of uh, fine with the idea that uh, I mean, you just killed them, <laughs> something like that. So there's a collective frustration, you know, from the public um, with this, with the uh, with the prevalence of crime and criminals, and the um, their dissatisfaction with the justice system. So you compound these two, then there you have it: a public that is supportive of um, radical, quick solutions. One of Duterte's major critics was former President Obama, who criticized his handling of the domestic drug war. The criticism was that it had already killed 28,000 people without any form of trial, some of which were innocents caught in the operation. Filipino presidents have almost always been very close with their US counterparts, but Duterte was very openly hostile to Obama. So why is that? You know, Michael, when when uh, when he was still campaigning, uh, when he was still a presidential candidate, you know, uh, when he talked about the South China Sea issue, he said that let's invite everybody in, you know, to to manage this issue. He said, invite the Japanese, invite the Americans. So he was very inclusive. But you know what um, made him change his tack? towards the Americans is when President, when President Obama then started to attack him on human rights issues. So that was a time when the, the anti-American in him, uh, you know, came out. <laughs> so he started to, you know, dig historical facts. You know, he started to talk about colonialism because he thinks that by doing so, he can, you know, he's able to throw mud against uh, the U.S. or against President Obama. You know, but interestingly, under President Trump, things have things have changed. I mean, you you also know that uh, President Trump do not say that much on human rights, human rights issues. So, you know, in that sense, they're uh, they have a they have the same they have a they have a pretty much the same wavelength. Duterte often criticizes the U.S. 
and praises nations like China and Russia, having made visits to both Beijing and Moscow, but never Washington. Is he really anti-American or is he just feeling out his options? He, he's anti-American when you hit him on human rights issues. <laughs> but if you're, if, you're a, if you're a democracy and you don't see... If you don't attack him on human rights issues, you know, look at look at South Korea, look at Japan. You know, both these countries are, they both are democracies. But they haven't said uh, much about um, human rights issues in the Philippines. Our relationship with them basically continued to, uh, to be stable and without disruptions. So right now he's perceived as pro-China, as a China stooge. And um, that is also because of, you know, the triggers made by the Obama administration. They kept on, uh, you know, uh, pressing him on human rights. So he felt that, why don't I, uh, as, a, as a form of retaliation, why don't I go to America's, why don't I align somehow with America's competitors? And uh, perhaps by doing so, you know, he can he can inflict, um, you know, it can serve as an affront to to the U.S. You know, he can express his um, displeasure with the U.S. Yeah, but even if he's you know even if he he has done that, his cabinet secretaries continue to maintain um, strong ties with their counterparts in the U.S. And is this warming towards Beijing felt throughout the country, or is it really just in the leadership? Right. So um, this is the great, I guess, one of the greatest ironies right now, Michael, in in the Philippines. China is so unpopular, but you know, President Duterte continues to be very popular. <laughs> so, how do we explain this? I think this manifests um, that. The people, Filipinos, like President Duterte for his domestic policies, and not necessarily for his foreign policy. In 2016 on the campaign trail, Donald Trump bragged he could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and he wouldn't lose any votes. I don't think that statement's completely true for the US, but for the President of the Philippines, it seems spot on. Things like bragging about sexual assault, attacking the press, broad, often vague anti-terror bills, and almost 30,000 dead civilians would sink most presidents. But even now after the midterms, Duterte has even more power in the courts and the Congress than any time in his presidency. In the US, Dan Quayle's presidential run was ended in 1992 by the misspelling of the word potato. So how does Duterte seem to get away with all of this? And with this newly found increased power share, what does this mean for the man who occupies the center square of this chessboard? Well, for that, we turn to our second guest. Part two, King for a day. Yeah, so, so Duterte um, was elected in 2016. Philippine president serve a, a six year term. So he's around until 2022. Um, which I think is is important as we think about where the Philippines is is potentially headed in the next couple of years. Sheena Greitens is a resident for the Brookings Institute and an expert on authoritarianism in East Asia. She also wrote the book Dictators and Their Secret Police, 
as she joins us today. He was originally mayor in da, uh, Davao in Mindanao. Um, so he had um, early experience in urban governance and in a part of the Philippines that is, um, you know, different from where previous Philippine presidents have come from. So, so most of them have been from um, the northern parts of the archipelago. Um, Duterte is, I believe, the first president to uh, to come from Mindanao, which is. Um, predominantly Muslim, has had a long-running uh, separatist um, and extremist violence issue. Um, and so he's got, a, I think, a different perspective on Philippine governance and the challenges of governing. Um, and he came to office really as a populist. Um, he has made outrageous statements from the beginning. Um, including particularly about policing and public security, anti-drug um, operations, um, personally suggested that he had killed uh, some folks involved in the drug trade when he was in Davao. Um, so he's he's been um, flamboyant and emphatic and sometimes makes statements that don't materialize in policy. Um, but he also has had a, a fairly high approval rating from the Philippine electorate um, across his term, despite having some some real and substantial criticisms and concerns about uh, some of the things he's done, in particular the the drug war and lately his treatment of the press. Um, so he's a, he's a complicated president. Duterte would definitely be on the extreme edge for Western politics, but how does he compare to other past Philippine leaders? I would I would say he's on uh, he's on one end of the spectrum in the Philippines. Um, so uh, earlier in my career, I spent some time in the Philippines studying the Marcos period, um, and there was kind of a, a running joke that Marcos um, was an attorney, um, but he actually sat the bar exam um, while he was awaiting trial for murder. Um, and he got one of the highest scores on record in Philippine legal sort of history. Um, but the paradox of having somebody who's an attorney who had real issues with the rule of law goes goes back to the, the Marcos period. Um, I think Duterte's populist rhetoric is, is certainly different than a lot of um, Philippine presidents, certainly um, Benino Aquino, um, it's not as if Duterte is an outlier in every single way, but but certainly in his flamboyant rhetoric, he's a departure from a, a lot of past um, past presidents and the way that they've talked about and communicated about politics. So what Duterte is most known for and criticized for is his handling of the domestic drug war. How does his handling of the drug war compare to other countries like Canada or New Zealand? Yeah, you know, there, there have been real differences in the Philippines and the human cost has been um, has been pretty high. So um, the estimates that that I've seen from advocacy groups and, and human rights groups um, are above 25,000 um, casualties in the in Duterte's war on drugs. And one of the main differences is that um, some of the violence has been extrajudicial in that there have been um, killings of people who've been accused of being involved in the drug the, the drug trade, um, but they haven't, they haven't been arrested, charged, uh, there hasn't been a trial, so they haven't received the due process that we associate with civil liberties and a liberal democracy. Um, 
And so the, you know, the concern is that um, there are essentially false positives, that a lot of the people who are, are getting killed, um, one, are, are not um, getting the the due process that they're entitled to as citizens, even if they're guilty. Um, and, and also that um, there's no real ability to check ahead of time and make sure that the people who are being killed actually are involved in the drug trade. Um, and so the risk of, of false positives, which is something generally democracies really try to avoid, um, has, has raised a lot of concerns. Um, and just the, the number of people who've been killed is, is really high. Um, compared to anti-drug conflicts in other countries. And, and Duterte seems, frankly, quite comfortable with that at a personal level. Um, his rhetoric um, is, is shows very little compunction about, um, about the loss of life. But that's, you know, Philippine presidents have traditionally had higher approval ratings than, say, American presidents. Um, it's, it's not uncommon for the approval rating to be well above 50% um, and kind of wax and wane over the course of that of a six-year presidency. Um, but Duterte's approval ratings have, have remained high. And, um, you know, I think one of the things that that means the United States as an ally and other, um, other countries have to be careful about is, you know, throwing around this term authoritarian. There is no question that Duterte's um, policies, both the drug war and his, and then his treatment of the the press, um, prosecution of um, Maria Ressa and her colleague most recently, um, raise real concerns about the quality of Philippine democracy. But at the same time, um, telling Filipinos that somebody who has this high approval rating and who was elected in a free and fair election um, isn't isn't a, you know, a democratically elected leader or that the Philippines isn't a democracy, um, runs the risk of sounding a little bit condescending. And there is a strain on the, especially on the Philippine left, but, but throughout Philippine politics where, um, this, there's a concern about, you know, the United States is, it, it was a colonial power. It colonized the Philippines. There's a concern about sort of a neo-colonial patronizing attitude from the United States in particular. Um, and so I think, you know, the United States has to be, has to be careful about its rhetoric um, because the reality is that, that some of Duterte's policies that are illiberal are also popular. And that's one of just the the real challenges that the world has to grapple with. And again, it's it's not limited to, to Duterte, but this this idea of populism and things that are popular, even though they don't protect minorities, they don't necessarily protect due process. Um, you know, the United States has to figure out how to you know manage an alliance and a relationship with the Philippine people that will outlive Duterte while also dealing with the realities of his presidency. That's really complicated. So Duterte is pushing through a fairly controversial anti-terror bill at the moment, one that multiple judges have resigned over. This bill is very vague and broad, leaving a lot of the results up to the discretion of particular judges. If you were, let's say, living in the southern Muslim areas of the Philippines, do you think you should be worried by this? Yeah, so the the anti-terror bill is intended to crack down on um, both... Uh, both the the drug trade again and um, and the issue 
of Islamic terror networks, um, again, which have operated primarily in the southern Philippines. Um, so the United States, even though it it um, closed its bases and left the Philippines on a permanent basis in the late 80s, um, since the early 2000s, kind of the post 9-11 era, has had a counterterrorism presence, um, a small, usually a couple hundred um, U.S. Special Operations Forces that have been in the southern Philippines um, to work uh, with Philippine police, military, special forces on combating groups like Abu Sayyaf. Um, earlier in um, Duterte's presidency, uh, Islamic State declared that it was going to establish a, a presence and a foothold um, in the Philippines with huge consequences for um, cities in in Mindanao, one of which was actually taken over um, and had to be placed under siege by the Philippine security forces. Um, that was Marawi in 2017. Um, and so again, you know, this is this is the part of the Philippines that Duterte comes from, that he has experience governing, and it's going to be a huge priority for him. So in contrast to other presidents, right? So if you think about Aquino, um, the, the president who preceded him, um, you know, his focus was very much on um, on trying to actually move the Philippines away from its internal security concerns, away from being focused on crime and terrorism and try to get, you know, for example, try to get more investment in the Navy and the Air Force and the Coast Guard and maritime surveillance, maritime domain awareness to try to deal with um, pressure from China in the South China Sea. And um, so his focus was more on trying to, to rebalance the Philippine military to deal with external security threats. Um, whereas Duterte goes, is going back to, uh, you know, a more, a, a pretty durable model that, uh, that, that really focuses much more on these domestic security threats. And now, you know, that this anti-terror bill will only add to an already powerful executive um, who's who's not been sort of super self-restrained on using those powers as he thinks appropriate. Um, and he's got, you know, another, another two years um, to use them. So um, the concern is, is that, um, you know, this will enable, he's already, um, used executive and police power very aggressively and that this this will just further weaken any check on on him doing exactly what he wants to do in the way that he wants to do it. So we know Duterte didn't like Obama, but what is his strategic relationship like with the US and how does it differ from his predecessors? Aquino uh, took a very different approach, right? He um, he was very concerned about China's incursions in the South China Sea. He took a case to an international tribunal, which the Philippines actually won. Um, and he sought a lot of assistance and expanded defense cooperation, the EDCA, Enhanced Defense Cooperation Agreement, um, to you know try recognizing that the Philippines on its own could not stand up to China in its territorial disputes in the South China Sea. Um, and so you saw a much more wary, much more wariness of China and willingness to bolster the alliance with the United States in order to try to um, 
to um to be able to to resist pressure from china particularly in the the south china sea um and the funny thing about duterte is that he's been kind of inconsistent um and so under duterte the alliance has been this really kind of odd mix where duterte will make these statements about you know liking China or Russia and going to Beijing. Um, but at one point, he also said that he would jet ski out to the Spratly Islands and plant the Philippine flag to stand up to China. Um, and he threatened to cancel the visiting forces agreement and went several months saying that he was going to cancel the visiting forces agreement that allows US forces to rotate through the Philippines and allows the defense collaboration that we have now between the Republic of the Philippines and the US military. Um, but then ultimately he walked that back um, uh, just in the last last couple of weeks. Um, and, it, you know, his foreign secretary has suggested, the Secretary of Foreign Affairs has suggested that that was because of China's, you know, increasing pressure, expansionism, militarization of the South China Sea, that that made Duterte nervous. Um, but I think you also see underlying that um, a sense in the Philippine defense establishment that in order to defend the Philippines and be able to ensure Philippine interests against an increasingly powerful China, that the Philippines is going to need backing from the U.S. And canceling the visiting forces agreement would have been a, a really um, negative move in trying to protect the Philippines long term. So, so um Know, although there have been t there's been a lot of concern in the U.S. about the drug war in particular and some of Duterte's other statements that have been really critical of the United States, um, you know, there's also been a real effort in the U.S., in particular in the Pentagon, to try to keep that relationship as functional as possible below the below the level of the the presidential rhetoric. There are institutions that I think have worked to to build that collaboration and. Um, and so for the Philippines to get that public statement that the Mutual Defense Treaty applies to the South China Sea um, was a, a, a real victory also for the, um, for the Philippines. Filipino presidents are limited by their constitution to serving one six-year term. So Duterte is scheduled to leave the office in 2022. But with Duterte being so wildly popular, do you think he will just anoint a loyalist? or simply try and amend the constitution so he can run again for president. Duterte has still, even by Philippine standards, maintained pretty high approval ratings, particularly for this point in his presidency, where a lot of presidents kind of hit a slump. I think you get a lot of pushback for trying to amend the constitution to run again. Um, a six-year term is a long time. Um, and a lot can happen in the next two years, right, before he's before he's actually up for re-election. And if if the pattern holds, um, you know, we would see a shift back toward a, a I would say maybe more traditional um, president or a president maybe a little bit closer to the the mold of of Aquino or or some of his other predecessors. Um, that said, these are really high majorities, and um, it's. It's possible that he could decide um, to play the role of kingmaker. The goal is to rule, um, regardless of how you get there. And so similarly with Duterte, I think if he feels like he can retain some informal power, um, he can choose a successor, 
Um, it would be in his interest actually not to necessarily do that prematurely, right? He, he maintains personal control um, for longer if he keeps a couple of names in the mix and um, and his daughter is is I think an obvious candidate. Um, she's got the name name recognition. She's she's known in Philippine politics, and um, and family networks have always been really important in Philippine politics. There is a chance that his his daughter will um, will will emerge as a, a viable candidate. Um, I don't think that's a foregone conclusion yet. Like I said, Duterte himself retains maximum control if he sort of keeps people guessing and, and um, you know, signaling that this isn't a done decision um, gives people a stake in being involved and trying to influence that process. Um, so my guess would be that he won't, um, if, if, if he was sort of purely strategic, he would wait a little bit longer to, to decide who he would campaign for um, as a successor. Um, but I think certainly he'll he'll try to set the playing field in such a way that his politic his his policies and his people um, you know outlive that six year presidency. I see that as a probably more likely scenario um, than him trying to you know say run for a second term. Um, but I, I don't think that's that's out of the realm of possibility. Just a little bit less likely than this this scenario where he tries to maintain a role as an informal kingmaker. You know, uh, authoritarian parties will acquiesce to democracy if they think they're going to do just fine at the ballot box in a democracy. Duterte and his politics are likely here to stay. So the US have made a decision to drop their criticism of human rights abuses in exchange for a return to the Washington sphere of influence. A decision that likely would have been made almost completely because of the Philippines' geographical position on the edge of the South China Sea. Being only 500 kilometers from Hainan and some of major Chinese ports is something the US cannot afford to lose. If the Philippines were to align with Beijing, the US would lose its likely anti-China staging grounds, as well as the ability to contain China's naval fleets in the South China Sea before they escape out into the wide Pacific Ocean. But to talk more about that, we turn to our next guest. Part three, prime real estate. So the Chinese in recent years have tried to move it towards more of a core interest, saying that it is as important to their territorial integrity and sovereignty as issues like Hong Kong or Taiwan or Tibet or Xinjiang. But for many years, they didn't really focus on the South China Sea. So in actuality, it's somewhat new. And their main focus here, I think, is actually um, security and military focused. Uh, they want the United States military out of the South China Sea so that they feel like they have more freedom to maneuver and that they can regain their position in a dominant country in Asia. And of course, there are economic uh, incentives to being in control of the South China Sea, fisheries, oil, for example. But I think actually the main motivation is more geopolitical in its orientation. Oriana Schuyler Mastro is a political scientist at Stanford and Georgetown University. She is also an expert on China for the AEI and a senior analyst for the U.S. Air Force. She joins us today. There's a book by Bill Hayden called The South China Sea that looks more at this historical 
basis for China's claims that I, I found fascinating. I heard him give a talk on it. And basically, you know, there was a map and it wasn't even, you know, Chinese Communist Party map. It was a it was a nationalist map um, that claimed this nine dash line claimed the South China Sea as China's. But he points out in his presentations that this not only is this sort of one map, but also there are so many inaccuracies in this map. Uh, for example, there's a shoal that the map lists as the southernmost part of China that doesn't even exist. Um, and so he also argues that the map was basically copied from a British map and it was basically miscopied. Um, and so this is China's historical argument that there's this one map that then, you know, was drawn up by uh, like some nationalist historian by copying a British map and it was copied incorrectly. And this is kind of their claim to the entirety of the South China Sea or the starting point for that claim. So the South China Sea is claimed by quite a number of nations, including the Philippines, Malaysia, Taiwan, Bhutan, Vietnam, and of course, China, who claims the whole sea. Uh, the southern tip of this claim is over two and a half thousand kilometers from the Chinese mainland. So how does China justify claiming that much of the South China Sea? So it's a combination of a number of manipulations of international law. So I don't want to bore your listeners too much. I'll try to go through this relatively quickly. But basically what China has done is built a precedent of international law on top of another precedent in a sort of misguided way. So the first thing China did is they basically treat these island groups. So there's two disputed island groups in the South China Sea. One is called the Paracels, one is called the Spratlys. And they treat them as groups. And this is important because in international law, if you are um, an archipelagic state, meaning that you are like the Indonesia and your country is made up of a number of islands, then the waters between those islands are considered internal waters, just like rivers are internal to Australia or the United States. A foreign country cannot sail through them. But this is a special designation that's um, given by you know the United Nations. You can't just claim your archipelagic state uh, if you're not. Uh, but China has done this. So the first thing they do is they basically say between these islands, which, as you've mentioned, it's not only so far south from China, but the distance between these islands and features and can, you know, be a fourth of the United States. I mean, it's vast distances in the South China Sea. They've basically said you can't sail between the islands because they are considered one group. So that's kind of the first step. And then from the outside of that island, group, they've said, now we have a territorial sea, 12, um, and then they say, and we have this exclusive economic zone that's 200 nautical miles from that. And on top of that, China interprets EEZs, or the exclusive economic zone, differently than anyone else. Um, they say that they have the right to regulate all activity, not just economic activity. And so what this means is China says that they can regulate you know, commercial air travel, they can regulate military um, operations, everything within that 200 nautical miles. So when you add up all those claims, you get about 75% of the South China Sea. And then they throw the historical rights on top of it. To cover the rest of it because and there is no international law uh, uh, concept of historical rights that's just something the Chinese made up so then they say okay we cover the rest of the 25% with historical rights which means you know we have this map and we've been there operating you know for a long time which is also not true and that is kind of how they built up this this claim um, to the majority of the South China Sea 
A lot of these reefs and atolls are incredibly thin and tiny, some as thin as just two and a half meters across. So how is China making these into islands capable of housing thousands of men and all their equipment? So China built 3,200 acres of new land in the South China Sea. And I'm not a scientist, but I'm told that they did this by stripping the coral and then putting you know, sand and land on top of these coral reefs. Really, it was to be able to uh, station uh, weapon systems on these islands and then be able to host like rotational aircraft, which they've done to date on these islands. And this is a real game changer because until these islands were built, the United States had an advantage in the South China Sea because the United States is used to and has experience projecting power over vast distances. The South China Sea is about, you know, the size of half of the continental United States. It's very big. And so China doesn't have experience projecting power that far. And so for a long time, the idea was that China would have to project power from mainland China, which uh, makes it very difficult for them to make a presence uh, in the South China Sea, mainly around the Spratly Islands. But once they have these military bases, then they don't have to be projecting power from mainland China, right? They just have to project power from those military bases. And so it really does give them a new edge and changes the balance of power in the South China Sea. They are basically aircraft carriers, but land-based. Now, one thing that that some people might say is, well, they, they're fixed targets, right? So they're less concerned about those bases because we know where they're at, right? They're not moving. It's very easy to target in environment. I would be reluctant to pursue that line of questioning for a number of reasons. I mean, first, you have to think about what is the type of war that we're fighting that the United States feels comfortable hitting territory that China considers mainland China, I'm not saying that the United States would never do it, but it is an escalatory move. And so this means I think there are many scenarios in which the United States wouldn't touch those islands. I mean, in the Vietnam War, the United States never put you know ground forces into North Vietnam. In the Korean War, we never bombed into China, even though they were launching sorties out of China. So in wartime, there are always these sanctuaries. And I think it's reasonable to believe that the United States, if there are any skirmishes in the South China Sea, wouldn't want to escalate it so rapidly. And this would allow China to continue to operate from those islands. So they are indeed kind of like aircraft carriers. Um, but I think the costs of attacking them are higher, even though it's easier to do so. Does the United States recognize these islands as Chinese territorial waters, or do we just sail our Navy ships right through them? So U.S. policy has evolved. I think uh, now the whole point of freedom of navigation operations is to show that we do not respect China's claims. And this means that there are some features, for example, that do not get a territorial sea. So UNCLOS, um, the UN Conventional Law of the Sea, has all sorts of rules and regulations about you know, what features even get a territorial sea or an EEZ. And so in the case where uh, UNCLOS does not give a feature a territorial sea, the United States will sail within 12 nautical miles of that feature, even though China you know, protests that. Um, in certain areas, uh, China says the United States has to ask them permission, again, because they believe they can regulate all activity within EEZs. Um, that is not the standard international law interpretation of it, of the rights of an EEZ, so the United States will not ask permission and will sail through those EEZs. So it kind of depends on 
the message that the United States is trying to send to China. But overall, what the United States has tried to do in recent years is say, you know, we're not these these claims are ridiculous and the United States is not going to respect them. And, uh, you know, we're not going to facilitate China bullying and coercing other countries to respect them either. These are international waters that all countries have the right to operate in. The southern part of the South China Sea is a long way from China, but it's a lot further away than that from the U.S. mainland. What are the U.S. interests in the South China Sea? Well, we have uh, a lot of interest in the South China Sea. It depends on, you know, do you want what our real interests are or what we say our interests are? I mean, uh, my big thing is the United States is way too shy about its interest in the South China Sea. To date, the government feels like it can only legitimately work through our allies and partners. So what you hear coming out of the government are things like, you know, the United States will protect the Philippines or the United States will protect you know, the rights of Australia and all of that is very important. But we also have to admit that the United States, too, has important interests in the South China Sea. And it depends on your assumptions about why we've had peace and stability in Asia. But I personally believe that it is because of U.S. military presence, that China has not been aggressive because they have been adequately deterred. And if the U.S. military were not in Asia, then you would see much more aggressive Chinese behavior. And so one of the reasons China is pushing this narrative about the South China Sea is they want the U.S. military to no longer be there so that they could have freer reign um, to reshape the regional order in a way that's more favorable to them. And I think that goes against U.S. interests. Um, You could say, you know, the economic reasons, but I think primarily it is that since World War II, the United States does not feel like it can be secure without the ability to project power around the world. And that's something that China is trying to restrict. Apart from the controlling of the trade routes and the natural resources, what is China trying to achieve from this expansion? Right now, we are all trying to figure out what Chinese intentions are. And we do so through a number of mechanisms. We look at discourse, what China says. We look at how China behaves. We look at the capabilities that they're building. Some people look at the internal characteristics of the state to see if that helps us determine, ultimately, how are they going to use all of this power and influence that they're building? Now, it's one thing for China to kind of bully Vietnam. It's another thing for them to be bullying a U.S. ally. And so in this case, I think it is very symbolic of, you know, what can we expect from Chinese behavior? And the lessons we've learned from the South China Sea are you can't trust their word. Right? Xi Jinping promised he wouldn't militarize the South China Sea. He did. When the Scarborough Shoal standoff was occurring, the United States tried to negotiate a de-escalation in which both sides were supposed to pull back. The Philippines pulled back and China did not. Um, and so I think all of this is really symbolic of, When China has the ability to uh, exercise its power at its fullest, what is it going to do? And I think what it's going to do is it's going to use that power to coerce states in the region to fully accommodate its preferences across a number of issues, even beyond the South China Sea. We are seeing lots of cooperation between Southeast Asian nations at the moment, but the mutual defense treaty between the U.S. and the Philippines has always been slightly vague. In the event of a full Chinese invasion of the Philippines, do you think the U.S. would defend Manila? 
uh, it depends on the administration, but my hope is the answer would be yes. And that has less to do, in my view, with the Philippines and our commitment to the Philippines and more that in that case, China has shown itself to be a dangerous power, right? If they basically unprovoked go invade and potentially occupy a sovereign country, uh, then we are dealing with a China that is a, a huge threat to the United States and its allies and partners. I would say right now we're not sure of that, right? Of course, there are the, these disputes in the South China Sea. China wants more control over these waters. But I don't, you know, look at China and consider it some evil empire. I think, you know, China has its own national interests. And if I were a Chinese strategist, I would be telling them to do exactly what they're doing. Now, if all of a sudden they start attacking, invading other countries, then I hope that the United States would defend those countries but also get involved to stop uh, what would then be considered a very clear indications of Chinese expansionism. The South China Sea sees $3.8 trillion worth of trade each year. If China could control the sea, what impacts would that have on reliant nations like Japan and Thailand? It's not only Japan, it's basically all Southeast Asian countries um, rely on maritime trade. And you might ask, and I actually did ask um, a number of maritime specialists this question because I also was not certain. You might say, well, you know, can't trade go another way? Can it go, you know, up north and to Japan, for example? And what I didn't realize, and maybe your, your listeners already knew this, but what I didn't realize is it's not like goods go from point A to point B. But actually, ships are picking up and dropping off goods along the way. And they also, just like a truck driver needs rest stops along the way, they also need ports, places to replenish. And up uh, the northern route, there are no cities. There are no places to stop and replenish. And so that would not only be extremely expensive and time-consuming, but logistically, in many cases, you know, close to impossible. So you have a number of countries that do rely on, um, you know, the ability to get goods through the maritime environment. And you might say, we, sh we have nothing to worry about. China has never threatened, you know, commercial freedom of navigation. That's what the Chinese government would say. That's their official position. Now, I agree that they haven't threatened to date, you know, trade going through these waters. But I also know that when they care about something, they are willing to use economic coercion to get it. I think we have plenty of examples of that. And so to say that if China had the power to cut off trade to a country that they would never use that power, I think is somewhat naive. There's talk at the moment of forming an Asian NATO, a bloc of countries against China, much like NATO worked against Russia back in the Cold War. Do you think that would be at all possible with geopolitics in its current state? So it's my, this is the big issue. It's no longer that the United States doesn't have the willingness to stand up to China. I think we have seen actually especially in the Trump administration, that the United States is now willing to take many risks to stand up to China. But Southeast Asian countries are not. And uh, I thought for a long time that was because they did not trust the U.S. commitment. I mean, that's that's the bottom line. That's what you hear a lot in the news. You know, Is the United States really a reliable partner? And so something like an Asian NATO could deal with that issue, right? That we could make our commitment clearer, that we could... Um, join the forces of not only the United, you know, not have this hubs and spokes system that we had before, but have all countries join together in order to, to deter China. But when I was in the region recently, there was another argument that came up that made me a bit worried. And I was talking to um, some government officials and scholars from Malaysia, 
from Vietnam, from Singapore. And we went through this hypothetical situation. I said, you know, what if you're 100% certain that the United States is going to defend you? You know, will you support the United States now in terms of not taking sides, but being a part of an Asian NATO, for example, or giving the United States more access so that the United States can better deter China? And the response I got was still no. I said, what if China controlled the South China Sea and they use that control to limit your sovereignty? The answer was still no. And the answer was still no because in the minds I'm fearing of many in Southeast Asia, even the reduction of some sovereignty, even the loss of some, you know, some territory, not, you know, their homeland completely, but at least the South China Sea Islands, um, it's not worth fighting a war with China over even if the United States fought with them, and even if in the end they won. And so I think there are a lot of people who are very concerned about costs of war. And this is something that is preventing Southeast Asian countries from joining forces in an effective manner with the United States um, against a, a more aggressive China. So the best partner would be you know, the partner that is willing to take the risk to do so. I would more than happy take, you know, Malaysia, Indonesia, Vietnam, any of these countries as as partners and being able to have U.S. bases in any of those countries would very much improve uh, U.S. operational um, probability of success in South China Sea scenarios. Let's say by some miracle, the Chinese managed to fully control the South China Sea. What does that do for the region? If China, through a series of whatever maneuvers, um, is able to control what we call that first island chain, which is basically the South China Sea. And in peacetime, the United States has in practice acquiesced to that. Then if a conflict does ensue, it becomes very difficult for the United States to operate there. And therefore, it becomes very difficult for the United States to hold China at risk. And this is why basically deterrence erodes and 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 you, you're going to see more aggressive Chinese behavior. There's a number of reasons, like, very specific. So, for example, like submarine tracking. If the United States isn't constantly operating in the South China Sea, we aren't gathering information about the salinity, temperature, and density of the water. If we don't have that information, uh, accurate and, and timely information about that, then we have difficulty tracking submarines. So, in a blockade scenario, you know, one in which we've acquiesced to China and we're no longer in the South China Sea, we don't know where any Chinese submarines are. That's a very, very dangerous situation for a U.S. you know surface fleet. Um, and so that's also why this is very important for the United States to stand its ground to continue to operate there. Because once those waters are basically controlled by China, then what we call the second island chain, which is this, you know, th that those waters then become contested. And then the defense of, you know, Japan is in question. The defense of Australia comes into question. And so this is... You know, you don't want to use domino theory type of logic because it's, you know, it did not suit our purposes and did not work in the past. But really, operationally, the United States military needs to stay in those waters. And that means standing up to Chinese claims there. Both Beijing and Washington have expanded far beyond their borders. And this is where the two sides meet. The Philippines is right on that border. With the population looking towards Washington and the president looking towards Beijing, the question now is for the Philippines, which way will the country go? And for that, we turn to our next guest. Part 4. The Powder Keg
Um, I think what we've seen um, since the election is an attempt to move the Philippines away from over-reliance uh, over on the United States. Obviously, the United States and the Philippines have had a security alliance for decades, but Duterte has, is extremely anti-American, uh, and he has pledged since his election that he would uh, incrementally move the, the Philippines away from uh, depending on the United States for its security. And so what we've seen in the last few years is um, Duterte engaging much more with Chinese President Xi Jinping, uh, uh, as well as Russian President Vladimir Putin. In fact, he even at one point, and I'm, and I'm paraphrasing here, but he essentially said, bye-bye Washington, hello Beijing, hello Moscow. So um, he's trying to put the Philippines on, on course for a non-aligned uh, foreign policy or perhaps a foreign policy that more leans toward um, China and Russia as opposed to the United States. Um, but the problem he's been running into is that the Filipino people and the Filipino defense establishment are extremely pro-American. Uh, and so he has faced many, many calls uh, not to do this not to go down this path and to defend Philippine sovereignty, Filipino sovereignty, especially in the South China Sea, uh, where there are a number of disputed islands between China and the Philippines. Derek Grossman is the national security and Indo-Pacific analysis expert for the RAND Corporation. He is also a contributor for The Diplomat and a professor at USC Dornsife, and he joins us today. So there's, there's a pretty big debate um, in the community of, of observers on this, including uh, with myself. So some believe that Duterte is just purely anti-American, and he is, there's no doubt about that. I think everybody agrees, but purely anti-American in the sense that there is no negotiation. He just wants to remove all of what, as he views it, Filipino over-reliance on the United States. But then there are others who believe that there is some negotiating tactics going on here and that, and, and I think I fall more into, into that camp. Yeah, so in other words, for me, yes, Duterte is anti-American, but he also wants to try to get something out of this if he can. China has been building up islands and bases throughout the Spratly and Parasol Islands for years now. But one in particular scares Manila. The Scarborough Shoal is a tiny atoll barely above sea level that was in Filipino waters. But in 2012, China moved in and took ownership of the island. Neither the US or the Philippines fought back, and today it remains in Chinese hands, demilitarized. But that may change. If they were to build a naval base there, they would have an airstrip less than 200 kilometers from Manila itself, well within first strike range. With Duterte's leanings towards Beijing, do you think he would ever allow the militarization of the island and the pressure that would put on Manila itself? Yeah, I mean, well, that's that, that's definitely a huge concern among the Filipino people because, um, you know, they, it's, it's a steady erosion of Filipino sovereignty that they're seeing in the disputed South China Sea. And so for Duterte to do something like that, I mean, I think he would rightfully be labeled as a traitor. Uh, among his people. Um, and when you look at what's happened there, so when Duterte came to power in 2016, you know, he, again, he said, and when it comes to Scarborough 
Maduro in particular, they allegedly, Duterte and Xi allegedly had a handshake agreement that the Chinese Coast Guard would allow, and Chinese fishing militia would allow Filipino fishermen to enter Scarborough Shoal and to fish there. Um, and that never really happened. And so when you look at what's going on, on there, what's been going on for the last several years, including up to now, the Chinese Coast, Coast Guard maintains de facto control over Scarborough Shoal. Uh, and so it's very difficult for Duterte to point to any kind of real success there. But what Duterte has consistently done vis-a-vis -vis the U.S. is he has pointed to 2012 and how China um, took over Scarborough without a fight. And so he'll say things like, hey, look, the U.S., uh, claims that it will defend the, the Philippines, and yet China took over Scarborough. Uh, of course, this was not on my watch, right? This is 2012. This was under my predecessor, uh, who, who didn't do anything about it. But still, the U.S. claimed that it was going to defend the, uh, the Philippines and did not. And in 2012, China took over the Scarborough Shoal. So how can we possibly trust the U.S. and its commitment to the Mutual Defense Treaty when we lost Scarborough Shoal in, in, in that manner. Um, and so what's interesting is Secretary of State Mike Pompeo visited the Philippines early last year and reiterated U.S. assurances under the MDT. But it was, it was interesting the types of things that Pompeo said because he was very specific in talking about how if Filipino government or military assets are attacked, that triggers the MDT, right? But is Scarborough Shoal a government or military asset? I mean, it's still an island that technically is in dispute with China and the United States and, and others, by the way. And so, the, and so um, you know, the U.S. does not take a position on who owns each of these islands and features, right? So... You could read into that and say Pompeo did not clearly state that Scarborough Shoal was a part of the MDT or any other island, disputed islander feature. Uh, and so there's definitely some grounds for criticism there if you're, you know, the, if you're Duterte or, or, um, or someone aligned with Duterte. So why didn't the U.S. actually go in and defend the Scarborough Shoal? Yeah, I mean, I well, I do think it came down to um, the U.S., uh, the Washington's understanding of its obligations under the MDT. There's no doubt about that, um, because again, Pompeo was re reiterating the U.S. view, which was this government and military threshold. Um, but I also think that on a more practical level, I mean, w if the U.S. is going to get involved in a dispute like that, I mean, it's kind of um, high risk for low reward. Um, and, and, and so I just think that the U.S. kind of looked at it and said that this is not something that we're really going to fall on our sword over. I mean, there's many other issues within Asia alone. I mean, of course, worldwide, but just within Asia, I mean, you can look at South Korea defending itself from the United, from uh, from North Korea, right? Obviously, the U.S. and South Korea have an alliance. You can look at um, Taiwan and the United States, even though there is not a formal security alliance. There are still many interests that the United States has in regard to Taiwan. And under the Taiwan Relations Act that was passed by Congress, 
the U.S. is obligated to defend Taiwan uh, against Chinese attack. Um, there are many other areas that the U.S. I think holds as a higher priority than um, than uh, disputed islands and features in the South China Sea. That is not to say that the U.S. would never get involved in such a conflict, but I think in the case of Scarborough Shoal, um, for whatever reason, it was deemed a lower priority. And practically, what can you do without escalating a conflict between you know China and the United States, which are both nuclear armed powers? Right. I mean, you never you never think you'd go to nuclear war over South China Sea features, but you also never know, right, uh, where this is going to lead. And so, I, I think um, Washington decided it was best not to do anything in that case. But it did cost the U.S. reputationally in Asia because it's not just the Philippines, but other countries in the region that do point to Scarborough in 2012 and say, "Look, the U.S. cannot make good on its commitment to the region." How important is the Philippines to the United States' overall China containment strategy? I think the Philippines certainly helps enormously. And it's, and it's purely because of the proximity, right? I mean, the Philippines, those bases, um, the, and there's, there's, there's many of them, but um, there, are, there are five in particular um, that were slated to be part of the Enhanced uh, Defense Cooperation Agreement uh, and those bases are as close as you can possibly get to the South China Sea. In other words, the, the potential future military theater against China. Um, and because and, there's nowhere else that would allow U.S. forces to base. I mean, you know, I've done a lot of work on Vietnam in the last few years. But I mean, Vietnam, as close as they want to get to the U.S. to help balance and deter China, they also um, are certainly not ready and won't be ready any time in the future, if ever, to allow U.S. forces to be based uh, in, the, in, in, in their country. In fact, their defense policy, which is known as the three no's defense policy, one of the no's is no foreign bases on, Vietnamese, on the Vietnamese homeland. So, I mean, it's really tough to find anywhere that's close to, that's clo as close to the potential theater as the Philippines. That said, the U.S. does have basing options uh, in other places, including in Australia at Darwin. There's a small presence um, of U.S. Marine Corps there. It's, you know, it's much farther away than the Philippines, but it's still within the, the, the region. <clears throat> then, of course, you have mainland Japan. You have Okinawa. You have U.S. forces in South Korea. And then you also have, and this is one area that many folks usually forget about, but and that's unfortunate, but I certainly haven't forgot about it, and that's the freely associated states, um, which are <clears throat> Palau, Micronesia, and the Marshall Islands. They have special international agreements with the United States to allow the U.S. military to have um, uh, uh, complete access, essentially, to an area that's the size of the United States. Um, when you look at, this is second island chain area, um, near Guam, right? And, and also, yes, let's not forget about Guam. We have lots of U.S. forces there as well. Um, but, the, but, the, but the freely associated states, it, um, the U.S. military can deploy troops through this region uncontested, and it's a region the size of the continental United States. And so that's another very important um, geographic area for the U.S. in terms of being able to um, get more forces into the region besides the ones that are already resident there.
The South China Sea could be the next big flashpoint, and neither side can afford to lose it, or really afford to keep the status quo for that matter. If China controls the South China Sea, it has the ability to limit the monumental amount of trade coming through, or be selective about which countries are allowed to trade. Entire nations may have to align themselves with China to make sure they have access to the lifeblood of their economy, that is the South China Sea, as many times their customers are oceans away. The US want to keep the seas free for trade because that plays to their advantage, being the owners of the world's largest navy. And they don't want to hand over the reins of Asia to the new adversaries so easily. But at what price are they willing to pay to defend that leadership? Doing nothing will allow Beijing more and more time to build up the islands and their capabilities not only sending a bad signal to the rest of Southeast Asia, but also making it exponentially harder to knock out the islands if the US does go down that road in the future. Some would say, attack now, knock them out while they're still fairly small, much like people said about nuking the Soviet Union before they built their own nuclear bombs. But much like the Soviet situation, we risk huge blowback. A war with China is a war between nuclear armed nations, with large armies, and war-capable economies. Any war with China would either be incredibly difficult and lengthy, or would end in a quick nuclear exchange. Either way, lots of people will die if things are miscalculated in the South China Sea. And these kind of situations often are. The Philippines is stuck in the middle. Their economy relies on China and Chinese dollars to continue to flow in but their military strategy relies on the US defending them. And last time it came down to it in the Scarborough Shoal, the US did not. If the Philippines were to flip allegiances and side with their largest economic partner, the linchpin of the US-China containment strategy will be gone, possibly for decades to come. Doing nothing about this issue only makes it worse, but doing anything runs the risk of catastrophe all the US can do now is try and keep the cards it still has, which sometimes means turning its back on basic human rights. Thank you so much for tuning in. June will be our first month to crack 100,000 streams in a month across all of our platforms. And we are so thrilled to see all the support. Each and every one of you who reached out to the show or supported us on Patreon has been absolutely amazing. If you want to help support the show, you can donate to our Patreon and get access to transcripts, files, and live Q&A sessions, as well as other goodies. Every dollar you donate goes straight back into the show, and we always do whatever we can to give more and more to our Patreons to say thank you for their support of our program. You can also follow the show personally on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook on at the Redline Pod, or you can find me on Twitter at Mike Hilliard Oz, Oz is in Australia. A huge thank you goes out to this week's guests. Aaron Jed Rabina was amazing and gave us a Panoi perspective. It's often hard to understand a country without speaking to the people who actually live there. So it was great to have Aaron on the program to help us comprehend the Panoi perspective. You can find him on Twitter at Jeb Rabina. Sheena Grinds is one of the most switched on people we have ever had on the show. And her book Dictators and the Secret Police is a must read. We were thrilled to have her on the program. You can find her on Twitter at Sheena Greitens. 
Arena came highly recommended to us and knows more about the South China Sea than almost anyone else. We will surely have her back again when we do a follow-up piece focusing on just the South China Sea. You can find her and her amazing work on Twitter on at Ozmastro. Rand have always been friends and fans of the show, and they have consistently sent great guests to us. And Derek was no exception. He was amazing to work with, and his insight into the tactics of the region gave a great perspective. I would advise you all check out his work on Twitter on at Derek J. Grossman. As always, another thanks goes out to Mark Spencer from the Climactic Network for the additional vocals on this episode. He's doing some great things at the moment, even working with former Australian Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull on one of his shows. I'm proud to call Mark a personal friend, and I hope you all check out his network on Twitter on at Climactic Show. We've also had Joe Hawthorne come on board here at the show for additional editing and mastering, and his work has been outstanding. We are honoured to have him on board, and you can find him on Twitter at JoeHawthorne77. From me, the final thanks goes out to you guys who listen, comment, and contribute to every episode. You make all the work that goes into each piece worthwhile. We'll be back in another fortnight with another international episode. But until then, thank you and good night.